Hi, I'm Tim Gavin, and I am obsessed with music. To the point where I've started noticing little teeny tiny connections and patterns, not just in the music itself, but in pop culture, history, and everyday things that maybe others won't really pay attention to. And even though what you hear is the most important thing with music, there's still no denying that image is a very powerful thing. Even in the age of streaming, a good album cover can tell you everything that you need to know about what you're about to listen to. And sometimes I've bought music just because I like the cover art. And I found a lot of bands I love this way. I have yet to find an album that I don't like just from looking at the cover. And looking at a cover photo or some cover art not only tells you about the music, but with the right context, you can see the mindset of the artists, musicians, and maybe even the culture at large just by looking at one picture. And sometimes lots of time is put into every last minute detail of an album cover. It can take weeks, even months, just to get an idea that would just go right back to the drawing board, but sometimes one lucky shot is all it takes to tell a listener exactly what they're getting into. And a lot of those lucky shots were done on a Polaroid camera, but just how deep is a camera company's impact on music? I mean, those instant print cameras, they've come back a little bit, but isn't it a hipster thing? I think it's time to find out. This is The Tim Gavin Show. I just wanted to say before I go any further that this podcast is not sponsored by Polaroid. This is just something that is really interesting to me. Plus, it just so happens that this week in 1949, some of the first Polaroid cameras were sold for $89.95, which, if you adjust for inflation, is about $985 US dollars today. Back then, it was called the Land Camera, named after founder Edwin Land, and it was the first time people could get photos developed without technically using a darkroom. But there were still a lot of extra steps where you had to sandwich the film onto the paper. It was still really easy to spill the chemicals to develop photos. It wasn't super convenient yet. But in 1972, Polaroid released their iconic SX-70 camera. It was small, easy to use, still expensive, but it did look great, and it felt really comfortable to use. But the best part? It used a new type of film that required basically no effort to develop. And if you're creative and don't mind taking a few risks, you could even do a little bit of editing on it. I mean, nothing close to Photoshop these days, but you could do some pretty cool things. Sadly, I'm part of the generation that missed out on these cameras, but there's something about them that has just completely left a mark on pop culture. Artists have used them to make some of the most beautiful and abstract photography that I've ever seen, and the Polaroid photo has been immortalized on some of music's greatest albums, including Contra by Vampire Weekend, John Lennon's Imagine, Loverboy's first album, Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid Mad City, and Taylor Swift's 1989. And of course, who could forget Shake It Like a Polaroid Picture from Hey Ah by Outkast? But I guess you could say I wanted to get the whole picture instead of just a few snapshots. So I reached out to the guy who literally wrote the book on Polaroids, author, photographer, and city editor for New York Magazine, Christopher Boninos. So what is the main thing that inspired you to write Instant, the story of Polaroid? Like, um, was it like almost going to be the story of Kodak, but then you decide, no, pol it has to be Polaroid? No, not really. Um, I got interested in the subject when uh, Polaroid announced that it was going to stop making film in 2008, 2009. Um, and I wrote a tiny little story about it for New York Magazine, where I am an editor and writer. And what I discovered in the course of writing that story was that um, this, 
there was a lot more to this subject than one might think. Um, it turned out that I very quickly stumbled down a rabbit hole that led me to the story of Edwin Land, who was the founder of Polaroid. And I discovered that he was this sort of great American entrepreneur and this great American scientist, you know, prominent enough to have been on the cover of Time magazine. And that Polaroid in its heyday was a sort of unique place. It was not like other tech companies. It was much more like uh, what what we now think of as an innovative tech company in the mold of um, Google or Apple. Um, and it was it was um, a sort of place uniquely devoted to the next thing, to the future. Um, and it's it's rise and rise and rise, and then the crash in the digital era was really interesting. And because it had just ended, it was a story that sort of fell into three acts: the creation, the rise, and then the collapse. Um, that and uh, at the time the magazine business was falling apart and I thought I needed a lifeboat. I pitched the book because I thought I might get laid off <laughs> and then I didn't get laid off and I had to write it. Still, it must have been a, a fun little project to do too. It was. I never got sick of it and in fact it was published in what, 2012 um, and I'm still, I still find it interesting. I still have the Google Alerts set up. I still, I still periodically uh, find myself, you know, connected to one bit or another of Polaroid's history. It is a subject that keeps replenishing itself, strangely enough. Absolutely. And one of the things that I found most interesting about Polaroid's is going online, seeing all the weird ways that people have altered Polaroid photos, especially in the vein of album art. I even found an album in my own record collection that I discovered was actually like run through um, a Polaroid photo run through a typewriter while it was developing. Well, one thing about Polaroid photography is that because uh, a Polaroid picture is an object, you know, it's not a digital file and it's not a print from a negative. It's a, it's a sort of one piece little thing, right? It inspired people to kind of, I don't know how to put this, to play with them in all sorts of ways. And, uh, you know, the, the, People like art students, for example, would mess with Polaroid a lot because the thing about it is that it provided a very low barrier to entry. Uh, a Polaroid photograph cost you, what, a dollar maybe, right? Ten pack of film was about ten bucks. So you could sort of mess around with it without a heavy commitment. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like trucking in a huge piece of marble to carve. <laughs> you, could, you could play, and if it didn't work out, well, you chuck it out and you do another one. That said, the wet chemistry of a Polaroid print particularly the SX-70 prints that appeared in the 1970s, was manipulable. You could press on it and modify it and smoosh the colors around and get interesting effects. And people discovered this by accident in the early days of this, uh, this, this format. Um, but it very quickly became popular. And lots of people found the kind of trippy, swirly aspect of it uh, well-suited to their music and thus their album covers. Yeah, I think like the playing with the temperature of the photo, that was something that I really like too. Like if it's really cold, it turns blue. But if you're taking a photo outside in like a really hot, hot summer day, you get that like nice, like almost like um, purplish pink effect going on it. Something weird happens and it looks a little cooked. That's right. There were artists, by the way, who would who would try to manipulate this very precisely. I know of one woman, a woman named Marie Cosindas, who used to process her photos, and she 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 would um, she would put them on the radiator for you know ninety seconds, and then jerk them off, and <laughs> at the last minute, she had she had it down to a science how much she could manipulate the color just by changing temperature. And 
Another thing that I just thought about of with this, like when you make these altars on Polaroids, how easy was it or how difficult was it to preserve those photos? Um, They're pretty stable. The thing about color Polaroid pictures is that they are like any color pictures. The dyes will fade if they are left in the sun. But if you keep a Polaroid print cool and dark, whether it's been manipulated or not, it will uh, it'll hold up for decades. You know, um, the heat is the enemy and UV light is the real enemy. Um, if you hang it opposite a window, it's going to be toast in a few years. If you hang it under a, a, a big office fluorescent light, that's bad too. But, you know, keep it in an album, keep it in a drawer, keep it in a box. As long as it's not in a hot garage or something, you're okay. The little white space that was at the bottom... Uh, perfect for writing on, but was that something a lot of people did or just a few people? Um, that, um, was an accidental discovery from the early days, just for, for everyone's information. The white tab at the bottom of a Polaroid picture contained the developer pod. When the picture ejects from the camera, what happens is the, the, it goes between a pair of rollers, which, um, break a little pod of wet chemistry inside that tab, and it sort of smears it up the, um, up the length of the print and thus uh, serves to do what you would do in a darkroom with a conventional picture, you know, the dunk into chemistry. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's the gist of it. Anyway, the tab at the bottom um, turned out to be a perfect place to label everything. It's true. You know, very early on, people tended to cut them off because they, with a pair of scissors because they thought, oh, this is just some artifact, you know? And uh, when Kodak briefly got into the instant photo game, they actually made a film where you could... Uh, it came in, it had a sort of sticker situation so that you could peel off the tab and get a, just a conventional print that had been on top. Um, now we would do the opposite. Now you want to see that frame because it signifies that it's a Polaroid print. It, it feels like a, an artifact of its being an object and you wouldn't dare take it away. But in the early days, it was considered a problem. <laughs> And I also noticed, like, with the frames, like, even nowadays, you're starting to see much more customization with those. Like, you get the different colors, the different, like, prints in the frames, too. I'm, I'm surprised that they didn't do that back then or even think about that. Um, I think there was a resistance to anything that looked gimmicky or toy-like in the early days because Polaroid was always fighting the perception that it was a snapshot medium, that it wasn't as good as, you know, real slides or, or large-format photography and Polaroid always got very agitated about that as a corporate entity. They said, no, no, this is as good as Kodak film. You just have to shoot it through a good camera um, and take care as you do it. Um, so they, 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 a lot of their ads emphasize the high photographic quality. You know, they, they would get people like Ansel Adams to shoot on Polaroid film. The, the, um, the, they called this the quality campaign. <laughs> and uh, they were always concerned about it looking like a toy. Um, and fighting against that perception. So I think they resisted for a long time anything that wasn't the pure, crisp, white frame that suggested the art gallery rather than the, you know, the hobbyist. And do you think that influenced the design of the camera as well? Because, like, every Polaroid camera that I've seen, it just looks fantastic and, like, an absolute joy to use. The company's um, uh, products were designed to delight 
And Land, in particular, really wanted the SX-70 camera, which is the best of all of them, to be an object that was sort of perfect in the hand and wonderful to shoot with. And he absolutely succeeded. It was, it was an industrial design milestone. I think there's one in the Museum of Modern Art. Um, it was mostly designed by Henry Dreyfus, the great industrial designer who designed, you know, the, um, the basic Bell telephone and a lot of other stuff that's still in people's houses to this day. Um, it was um, it was a conscious choice to make them wonderful objects in the way that Apple obsesses over making its uh, computers and other devices wonderful, covetable objects that feel good in the hand. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I think I even read somewhere that Steve Jobs was like hugely influenced by how Polaroid did business and how they designed things too. Is that correct? He absolutely was. He he idolized Edwin Land, said it explicitly in interviews, and even made a trip to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was where Polaroid was headquartered, um, in order to meet him. And so with the instant cameras that you see out in stores today, have you used them? And do you think they have, they bring that same kind of magic that Polaroid used to do? Um, the cameras that are sold today are mostly fairly basic. They come from two companies. Polaroid has a camera back in the market now. They, they introduced it a year or so back. Um, and it's not bad. And then Fujifilm makes a whole line of instant cameras called Instax. Um, and, you know, they're all definitely amateur cameras. They don't provide a ton of control over exposure and aperture, you know, the way a professional instrument would. But uh, none of them's terrible. And although the cameras themselves do not have quite the same ability to uh, entrance that the best old Polaroid ones did, um, the, the, this particular way of taking pictures performs absolutely the same magic trick on you that it always did. I can't tell you how many young people, people who are digital natives, grew up in the, in the 2000s, have embraced this way of making pictures. Every teenager I know seems to want um, an Instax or Polaroid camera, and, and they use them as party cameras. I see them walking around New York with them, taking tourist pictures. You know, it's crazy. These are, these are people who have a much more versatile camera in their pocket on their phones. <laughs> um, nonetheless, they crave the little object. Well, you know, as they say, limitation breeds creativity, so I think that might be a part of it too. It absolutely is. Um, the fact that these things are a little imperfect makes them unique. Uh, the pictures, I mean. And also the fact that they are objects, as I said, makes them um, feel special because they're one of a kind. They cannot be copied easily. And so if you, for example, take a picture of your friend with a Polaroid camera and hand it to that friend, then you've given them a one-of-a-kind thing. It's, you know, it may not be great art, but it has some of the qualities of great art in that it is hard to copy and one-of-a-kind, and it commemorates a particular moment, and it shows perhaps the hand of the artist or the photographer. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique gift that you're giving that person. And there is something uh, still a little special about that. Definitely. But that actually brings me to my next question. How exactly do you take a Polaroid and, say, turn it into an album cover on a CD or something? The way you'd actually do it back then was you would re-photograph it onto conventional film and blow it up to 12 by 12 inches. <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the manipulation that a lot of people did for making sort of artworks out of them. Uh, there were all sorts of different ways to do that, and we can we can talk about those if you want. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm absolutely interested in that. Um, 
like I said, looking through a few albums that were done on Polaroids, I think one of the one of the most interesting ones that really stood out to me was for one Peter Gabriel's third album, uh, Melt, and like the effect that they did on that. Um, that's that was done by a guy named Storm Thorgerson uh, from the design studio Hypnosis um, in I think 1980, 79, 80. That's the same group that did Dark Side of the Moon, right? That is correct. Um, <laughs> uh, they were good at the trippy album cover. So the particular technique that's at work there is the manipulation of an SX70 print. And basically this is how it worked. The, the, um, the print itself has a mylar cover that is clear. And under that is the emulsion that constitutes the, the multiple layers um, through which the dyes migrate and the processing has is too much chemistry in this i realize so I'll, I'll i'll gloss over it a little bit but the upshot of it is print comes out of the camera over the next call it four minutes the image resolves uh, develops and resolves itself during that time and for some time after the emulsion is soft it's mushy and if you take a dull implement, the classic thing you used was a dried-up ballpoint pen, but there were styluses, there were all sorts of things. You can push it around under the mylar cover, you know, like you're, you're, you dig into it a little bit. If you push hard, you reveal the backing layer behind, you know, you make a trench through it. Um, if you press just a little, you sort of blend the colors and, and mess with it. Um, the first artist I know of who did this was a guy named Lucas Samaras, who was an avant-garde guy from the 60s. He invent, helped invent the happening in uh, Central Park with his friend Alan Capro. And he, um, Samaras made these wild man images of himself. They were mostly self-portraits. Vir- virtually all his work involves pictures of himself, at least from that era. And he, he, I think he dinged a print by mistake that he just made and discovered that he could make it, you know, cut it. Uh, cut the image a little bit. And so he started making these crazy manipulated self-portraits where his chest would be flayed open or his face would be sprawled out in some crazy direction or he'd he'd have, you know, uh, uh, sort of bands or stripes radiating from his body and face. They're they're really precisely controlled images and they're super cool. Um, They're in a lot of museum collections. They, They don't show them much because they don't want them to fade. Uh, but they are, um, they're, they're, they're among the best executions of this medium. But he wasn't the only one who did it. People saw this and said, oh, I want to try that, you know, because there was lots of, um, lots of possibilities. Some people did it in swirly ways, and some people did it in precisely controlled ways, and some people did it, they would make fake um, Van Goghs, you know, with sort of uh, uh, blur in the image. Um, they play with them in the same way people play with Photoshop filters now. Um, the, uh, the, the Peter Gabriel one in particular, as, as you know, from looking at it, it's, it's an image that is sort of melting on one side and left alone on the other. Um, and, um, I, I will note it here that Peter Gabriel for his first four albums did not show his face on any of the covers except in ways that obscured it somewhat. The second one, the slashes go across his face, um, the third one, uh, the third one is melt. The fourth one, I, I don't even know what that thing is. That pixelated, weird color image. Um, he always was hiding until his fifth album, So, which is a hard, crisp black and white portrait, and is a very different album. It's much more pop oriented, and I think he was coming out into the world. Yeah, I think I, I can definitely see a lot of the symbolism there. 
I actually noticed a lot of symbolism on the the Polaroid shots that Taylor Swift did for 1989. And I was actually wondering, do you have like any sort of like artistic interpretation of that album art that you wanted to share? Uh, it's interesting that she chopped off her face also on that one. <laughs> um, she, I know, is a Polaroid photography enthusiast. She carries a camera with her and shoots around the city. She takes pictures with fans. She, you know, she she is an enthusiast of that particular form. Um, and 1989 is her birth year. And of course, 1989 would be in the heyday of Polaroid photography, too. So I assume that's what the reference was, right? You know, that's that's when that kind of picture taking would have been standard issue rather than a sort of an exotic curio the way it is now. And um, I think, you know, that thing I was talking about before where people who are digital natives crave something a little analog and imperfect. If you look at that, that's shot on the film that is currently available or was currently available at the time from a company called The Impossible Project, which had taken over making film after Polaroid quit. And it's sort of, uh, the color's sort of messed up. It's a little bleached looking and not quite right. Um, a lot of people who shoot Polaroid film now sort of lean into the imperfections like that. They they um, they uh, they they embrace it as a thing that is imperfect and therefore more authentic. And you know, I, I don't want to speak for Taylor Swift, but I'm sure there are aspects of her life that she sees as imperfect and therefore more authentic as well. All right, last question I have: Who do you think did more? for keeping Polaroid in the cultural lexicon? Taylor Swift or Outkast? No contest. I, listen, I say this as a person who likes Taylor Swift records, despite being an old guy. Um, but Shake It Like a Polaroid Picture was a phenomenon. Hey Ya, first of all, Hey Ya is a great song. There's, there's no arguing the point. Um, but that phrase stuck with people like nothing else. It's it's playful, it's funny. It wasn't even the, you know, we were we were doing a story at the magazine about great songs of the summer, and every list we put together, Hey Ya was missing. And finally I said, why is Hey Ya not on this list? And they said, because it wasn't a song of the summer, it was a song of the whole year. <laughs> um, it was immense. The great story there is that Polaroid, when that, Polaroid itself, the company, I mean, when that song came out, they didn't know what they had. They, they, for years, had been telling people not to shake the pictures because, you know, it's a myth that you should shake a Polaroid print to make it develop. Um, it does nothing. All it does is, like, risk cracking the image. It's a holdover from the early days when the prints came out wet and you had to dry them off. But that hasn't been true for decades. Um, it's just this sort of ghost in the machine that lives on. But the, 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 uh, the uh, the song came around and suddenly for the first time in many years, and in fact Polaroid had declared bankruptcy two years earlier in the beginning of the digital era, um, for the first time in many years the word Polaroid was on everybody's lips. So the company sort of, they sent out a press release saying, well, you know, you really shouldn't shake the image, you risk damaging it, you know, it, uh, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything. And then they realized they had a, a wild success on their hands. <laughs> And kind of, kind of embraced it. They came around. Apparently, if you went to any Polaroid corporate event for the next couple of years, there was only one song you heard. <laughs> At least it was a good one. It's a great one. I had a friend when I was writing the book who said to me, uh, "Did you get the Outcast song into your Polaroid book?" And I said, "Did I get it in? I got it into the first paragraph." <laughs> 
even though Hey Ya is more iconic when it comes to Polaroids, 1989 by Taylor Swift took that aesthetic as far as it could possibly go, with physical copies having about 16 Polaroids included, and the album cover and artwork for each single off the album being a different Polaroid photo. So eventually, I realized that I needed to do a deep dive into this album. More after this. Hi, I'm Ashleen from The Feminist Critique. We are a movie podcast that takes a deep dive into some of your favorite movies to analyze them. Both me and my co-host, Gracie, talk about if the movie has aged well. We put them to both feminist and inclusive tests. Then we ask the most important question of them all. Is the movie good? Because a film doesn't necessarily have to be feminist or inclusive to be considered good, but it is kind of nice when those things are included. We have theme months, including May, which is Mel Brooks month. June is LGBTQ month. And then July is our favorite month of them all. Bad movie month. So check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until this week, I hadn't really listened to Taylor Swift before. And I know what you're thinking. Even after working in country and pop radio, you still haven't listened to Taylor Swift? Well, don't get me wrong. I've heard her music, but there is a difference between hearing and really listening, at least for me. I have heard her singles. They're great singles, no question about that. But actually sitting down, putting on some headphones, really giving a Taylor Swift album really close attention. Honestly, I hadn't really done that before. But the more I looked around about Polaroids, the more notes that I took, I realized that I had to talk about 1989. And you know, Taylor Swift, great musician, great singer. Gonna find some great songs on there. And I've listened to 1989 a ton of times this week. And there is definitely a good reason that this album is one of the best albums of the 2010s. It's really solid. There are no bad songs on it. It's all killer, no filler. And while the album is inspired by the 80s, I find that it doesn't use nostalgia as a crutch. In fact, you have to really listen for anything remotely 80s on it. Now, the most retro part of this album is its Polaroid cover art, which I think is amazing just because it matches the music perfectly. I mean, on the surface, it does seem pretty basic, but the more you look around, the more attention that you pay to this music and to the album art, you're going to start asking yourself some things. Why is the tone of the photograph that way? Why is her face cut off? And what is it about that shirt that makes it so interesting? It's just a whole bunch of ways that you can interpret it, and it's kind of fun to analyze. Now, Taylor Swift is on the record for saying that it was kind of an accident that that cover was used, but that doesn't mean there's no meaning behind it. It just means that whatever meaning that you interpret, it just means that it's one of many, and I think that's a really cool thing. But anyways, if we're going to talk about 1989 by Taylor Swift, we need to do a little bit of a refresh on how this album was made. Back in 2012, Taylor Swift was starting to walk away from her country music roots with her fourth album, Red, which was an album praised for its songwriting and diversity. There was some slightly mixed opinions on its incorporation of different genres, but otherwise, it was a success. I like a lot of the songs that I have heard off of Red, but you could definitely tell that Taylor Swift was definitely using that album as kind of a transition into more mainstream pop, especially because the pop songs on Red were the highest charting off of the album. Taylor Swift began writing for 1989 while on tour in 2013, and later that year, she spoke to the Associated Press, suggesting that she would once again work with Max Martin and Shellback, two names behind a lot of really huge songs from the last few years, including all the big singles off of Red, 
And Max Martin, actually been huge since the late 90s. If you like pay attention to songwriters, uh, you know that he is behind the Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, and writing 23 number one songs since 1999. He is on a lot of different things. You'll find his name everywhere if you look into pop music. And Shellback is a protege of Max Martin's, and one of his early hits was Pink's So What from 2008. Also worked with Usher, Kesha, Maroon 5 on a lot of different songs. Basically, working with them guarantees you're going to have a successful album. So Taylor Swift kept working with them for 1989 for most of the songs. But she also brought in a few other people, including Jack Antonoff, who at the time was a member of Fun, and they did a little bit of songwriting and production as well. The two of them first did a song called Sweeter Than Fiction for a movie soundtrack around 2013. They wrote that one in Jack Antonoff's apartment in New York after bonding over their love of the sound of a snare drum that they heard when listening to 80s band The Fine Young Cannibals, who really got big in, and say it with me, 1989. See? Something about this year. Swift and Antonoff co-wrote and produced three songs for the album, Out of the Woods, I Wish You Would, and You Are In Love, which is a bonus track on the deluxe version of 1989. Taylor Swift also worked on a couple songs with Ryan Tedder of One Republic, Imogen Heap, and producer Greg Kirsten. But the rest of the album, mainly handled by Max Martin and Shellback. Like I said, you've probably heard all the singles off of this album, so I'm not really going to touch on those too much, but there are three deep cuts on 1989 that really stand out the most to me. Uh, first off, the first track off 1989, Welcome to New York. It was written when Taylor Swift relocated to New York from Nashville. Keyboards and the drums, probably the most 80s sounding on the album, but it's nice, bright, just really positive sounding music, and I think a great way to kick off that album. Another song, I Wish You Would, again, written partly by Jack Antonoff, also incorporates that Fine Young Cannibals drum sound. Really nice sounding guitars on there too. And the third highlight for me, is a song called This Love, which I think sums up exactly what 1989 was trying to do just over the course of four minutes. I also kind of interpret it as Taylor Swift's complete goodbye to country music because it's the only track that was produced by Nathan Chapman, who was the main producer on her first four albums. And it starts off just super basic, Taylor Swift and a very country sounding guitar. But then as the song goes on, you get this nice big, bold 80s style production, some really deep sounding drums, you get more layers making their way onto the song, and then once that song is over, the rest of the songs of that album just keep getting poppier and poppier. And even though it was a big success, 1989 was a bit of a hard sell for her record label. Big Machine Records president Scott Borchetta tried to convince Taylor Swift to record a few country tracks, but ultimately accepted that her new music wouldn't be country. And I mean, in the end, it did pay off huge for everyone involved. 1989 is one of the few, if not the last album, to get big the old-fashioned way. It was released right as streaming was starting to get really big, and Swift not only withheld it from Spotify, but she removed the best of her music off of streaming services. And eventually, and actually pretty recently, a lot of those albums were put back. But most of the sales numbers for 1989 came from honest-to-goodness physical copies. And of course, to add to that feeling of nostalgia that 1989 was trying to evoke, the album was full of Polaroid pictures, which would prove to be a huge boost in sales for the Polaroid brand, and also a little extra boost in terms of recognition. 
like I said, if you haven't listened to 1989, even if you're not a Taylor Swift fan, I think you'll really like this album, or at least like some of the deep cuts on it. Give it a chance, check it out. I think there'll be something that you like. But now I need to know, besides just being the year that Taylor Swift was born, what makes the year itself so special? I think it's time to look back at what was popular in 1989. Take a look at some singles charts. And I have a little bit of help with that too. All right, so joining me with this segment for Still the One, uh, my good friend, uh, Alberta Stingray North Program Director, Grefka Schnowski. How, how is everything? Things are good, Timmy. How you doing, buddy? Oh, doing pretty good, doing pretty good. I am excited to check out these charts with you because I know you were mentioning 1989, very, very crucial year for you. It is. It's the year I graduated from high school. So it's interesting to go back and see how many of these songs actually I remember listening to. And, and before even uh, dialing in here with you today, there's a few that I do not remember at all. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, like looking at these charts, there is like, there's a couple like right near the top that I'm familiar with. And then everything else that I like from this year is around the bottom. Yeah, <laughs> that's usually the way it goes with me too. When I look at uh, past charts, I'm like, how come that wasn't a bigger hit? That's such a great song. And, I know. And then you see it like what was number one or number two. And you're like, how did that become number one? Oh my goodness. I know, right? And there are some years where it's definitely more timeless songs. Like, I, I remember I was talking to um, Scott last week. We were talking about 1984. There were so many great songs that came out that year. That was a good year. 84, 85 was really the big, kind of the big years where you started seeing uh, a little more of like the, the hair metal starting to creep in a little bit. And, um, and, you're, and you definitely saw more of the true pop top 40 where there wasn't as much country in there anymore. We're basically up till like 1983, starting in 84, the pop charts were all over. Like the top 40 charts, there were just, you'd hear a country song, you'd get a pop song, you'd get a rock song. I think we started seeing definitely the more, uh, uh, a more focus on top 40 music around that 1984 mark. And that actually kind of brings up another question too. Like you were saying, like a whole bunch of variety in the charts, country, rock, and also pop. It's kind of like how, how it is now. Yeah, a little bit like now. I think uh, we don't see as much of it now, I think, because there is so many different charts now, right? I mean, in the 80s, early 80s, it was all, everything was thrown into one chart. And then all of a sudden, as the mid 80s started happening, country got its own chart, uh, top 40 still had a chart. And then towards, as we can see here in 1989, um, and then into the 90s, we definitely saw you know, country getting its own charts, different styles of pop charts. There was the rhythmic uh, top 40. There was, uh, you know, pop top 40. Rock started getting their own charts. So we saw radio stations really going away from playing everything to more specialization. And I think we can see a little bit of that in this 1989 charts. Absolutely. And especially with the stark contrast in between the Billboard and RPM charts, like they're almost completely different. Yeah, there are just a few little similarities, but you definitely can tell, and, and, and you can tell in the States how they were starting to go more pop and, and starting to go a little more rhythmic CHR, as opposed Canada hadn't quite caught up just yet, but we would definitely see that in the, in the, the next year in 90, 91, 92. We would definitely start seeing that separation of, of kind of the, the mainstream pop and rock to more dancey and more uh, rhythmic CHR. 
And I remember talking to you about this in the past too, but I remember you saying that what was popular in Canada was also extremely regional too. It was. It's so true because the way that things, how RPM, if I remember correctly, how RPM did their charts. So every radio station would send their weekly spins list. Now back then you had to do it via fax. So everyone would fax in their weekly spins list. So what RPM would do, it would grade and weight each spin depending on the market. So a, a, one spin by a, a artist in Toronto was worth more, let's say, than a, and then a spin in Red Deer. Um, so obviously if, if, uh, if an act and I'll use an example of the spoons, uh, which were, which were somewhat popular here in, in Western Canada, but definitely more popular in Toronto because that was their home base. So they got a lot of love because of that waiting system because they were getting spun so much in Toronto. Uh, then you look on the other hand of, of an artist, like, uh, let's say the grapes of wrath or even, uh, the Northern Pikes who were huge here on the prairies didn't get a lot of love in Ontario. So we didn't see their songs chart as high as, as maybe they should have, if it was just based on, on spins alone rather than the weight system. And also different number ones. So for the hot 100 back in 1989, Bon Jovi, I'll be there for you. But in Canada, it was Madonna, like a prayer. Both huge songs. Uh, I remember when like a prayer came out and the big controversy behind it, because there was a, uh, 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 an African-American actor playing, basically portraying Jesus uh, in the video. And people were in an uproar back there. You got to remember, this is 1989, right? So, you know, everyone a little stuck in their traditional ways. And Madonna always loving to push the envelope. That is a great song, though. And I'm not a huge Madonna fan, but I, that song to me showed, showcased a, a, a different style to Madonna. And a little more, I think a little more substance because up until then she was kind of doing that like a virgin thing. It was almost shock for shock's sake. This one had a little more, uh, I think it was just a bit more substance to it. And the Bon Jovi, I mean, the power ballad, I'll be there for you uh, from the New Jersey album right in their peak. Uh, it was actually the summer of 89 when I saw Bon Jovi in Edmonton at the Coliseum uh, with the New Jersey tour. So that album was huge. So both great big songs, both worthy of number ones. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that they, they both should be number one songs. Absolutely. But I want to know which one do you think is the better of the two? <sighs> Boy, you know what? If I had just because I'm a Bon Jovi fan and I'm a rock fan, I'd probably go with Bon Jovi, even though that's not their best song. And I do think Madonna, that might be her definitely one of her top two, top three songs. But I, 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 I can never turn down Bon Jovi over Madonna. So I'll have to go with Bon Jovi. I know. I, I kind of figured you'd say that. <laughs> like, I, I'm kind of with you too, but just because. Like a Prayer isn't my personal favorite Madonna yeah. song. I'm actually more of a fan of her like 90s and 2000s work. See, and that's where I, uh, like I was, I liked Madonna when Like a Virgin came out, when uh, her True Blue album came out. Uh, this one, Like a Prayer, was a good song. W once I started getting into the 90s and then into the 2000s, I kind of lost track of Madonna. But you got to remember at that time, Madonna wasn't putting out music in the 90s and 2000s for, for me. She was definitely going for a younger audience and a younger crowd um, where I was at that age limit when or I was kind of in that age range when she was originally putting out her first music. So I, she was singing right to me. Right. And so it was just kind of like, oh, I love this. This is awesome. But as time went on, I, I gradually became less and less a Madonna fan. 
while we're at it here, let's take a look around the rest of the charts. One thing that I also notice here on the RPM chart, not a lot of CanCon. Yeah, and that's, you know what, 1989, I think, again, you started seeing a little bit of diversion in the music. Uh, for top 40, as we talked about earlier, where people were going, you know, was it more rock? Was it more pop based? Wasn't a lot of pop based music up coming out of Canada. Like if you take a look at the uh, CanCon here on the RPM chart, like the Blue Rodeo, definitely not a pop band. Um, you look at stuff like Pursuit of Happiness was definitely more rock. Uh, Brighton Rock, which by the way, very underrated band. One more try. I love that song. Uh, Glass Tiger, kind of more rock edge. We definitely, you saw more of the rock edge in Canada yeah. than, than in the CanCon. So maybe that's probably a little bit why. And I think at that time, if you, again, if we go back to the waiting system, I think stations in Toronto were starting to go a little more CHR, a little more pop based. So they weren't giving as much love to those, those rock based songs that we saw like i mean we just saw victory day by tom cochran i think debuted at number 78 where you know maybe a few years earlier that song would have debuted in the top 20 um so again it, i think we that it kind of shows the the shift that we saw in top 40 radio in canada uh starting to to kind of mimic what was going on in the states definitely and over on the billboard chart I actually had no idea Donny Osmond was still making music in the 80s. So here's the story about that Donny Osmond Soldier of Love song. It was sent to radio in the States, and it was not told to anybody that it was Donny Osmond. Because he had, you know, already had the, you know, as soon as you thought Donny Osmond, you thought the Osmonds, you thought the TV show, you know, the bubble gum. He wanted to reinvent himself. So it was Z100 in New York that spun it the very first time. And, and they just put it out there. They said, tell us what you think of this song. Didn't say who it was from. Soldier Love gets played. Phone lines light up. It's the number one requested song for like the first week it was aired. And finally, they let people know it was Donny Osmond. People were shocked by this. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a cool way that Donny kind of reinvented himself. He, he wanted to, the music to speak for itself rather than his name which is probably why that song was so big. It's actually a really good pop song too. Uh, it definitely, when you hear it, you don't think Donny Osmond, um, at least the traditional Donny Osmond, a very, very good pop song. Absolutely. Also coming at number nine, Patience, Guns N' Roses. Oh, yes. You know what? I always find myself whistling that song. <laughs> yeah. It's a great whistle song. But it again, is. you know, Guns N' Roses at the time, uh, they were between albums, so they put out... Um, uh, they were working, they hadn't more started working on the Use Your Illusion albums yet. So they just, you know, Appetite was kind of running its course. So they put out the, they had that live, uh, the live suicide EP. So they put that all together with five new acoustic songs. And that was the GNR Lies album. And Patience was just, again, they were, they're kind of building on the, on the feedback they got about Sweet Child of Mine, which was their first huge hit. And this is kind of that, that power ballad again, right? And it really set Guns N' Roses to me apart. It really showcased that they were more than this just really great hard rock band. Uh, but it was also not a cheesy ballad. It was a ballad with some substance. And that's why still to this day, it's still one of the best songs. I think it kind of like serves a purpose, not just as a ballad, also a great campfire song. Oh, absolutely. It's a song. I think anyone, if you know how to play guitar, it's easy to pick up around the campfire. You're so right. And yeah. just pick it up and just start little patience. 
Yeah. Everyone can sing it too, right? It's, it's, uh, it's really a timeless song. A lot of soundtrack stuff on here too. Sharon Peter Cetera, uh, Michael Damien, and Wind Beneath My Wings, probably oh, the yeah. biggest of those. That was, I think, well, that one, again, reinvented Bette Midler in a pop field. I mean, she had a huge hit with The Rose, which was like early 80s. So Bette, you know, not really much a, a pop star, more of a, you know, Broadway and, and an actress. And then she comes up with Wind Beneath And really, what, what one of the timeless lines... You know, who you never knew that you were my hero. You were always the wind beneath my wings. Like, I think everyone has a person like that in their life, which made that song so relatable. Um, and I mean, yeah, the, it, yeah, call it a, a schmaltzy uh, love song, if you will. But it, it, it still is one of those songs that if it gets played on the radio, I don't know anyone that's going to go, turn that crap off. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I get this song. All right, this is cool. Yeah, absolutely. And... Oh, I, ju- I just saw Metallica on the chart too. Number 85. <laughs> wow. A top 40 song that hit the t- number 85, which is the best Metallica song, by the way, in one. That one yeah. still is my, uh, that's the one, the song that, and I know a lot of people are going to say that uh, Masters of Puppets was kind of the one that really put Metallica uh, on the map as far as being like legends. Um, and I think time will show that that's the case, but one was the song that really got me into them. So I remember, uh, growing up in Innisfree, uh, we didn't have cables. We only had like three channels, right? So my mom and dad got a, one of those big honking satellite dishes, like the big honking ones. And so we would, there was an American video channel that used to come in. So I used to turn that on first thing in the morning, getting ready for school. And that was the first time I ever heard Metallica one. They, they started playing in the video like all the time. And I absolutely fell in love with that song. That was my first Metallica album was Injustice for All. And it just, that solidified me becoming a huge fan of theirs. Uh, great song, surprising it even charted. it's so long too yeah and it just doesn't fit like right before it is like on the charts at number 84 chicago and you know enya with uh orokino flow is uh orinoco flow i mean before that at number 83 like metallica just does not fit in a top 40 uh chart in anywhere and i i think if you were to tell them that like hey look at this 1989 chart one was between Chicago and, well, you two's in theirs, which isn't too bad. They would probably laugh and go, really? We're the same uh, sentence as Chicago? What are we doing wrong? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like Meta- Metallica, they are like low-key Chicago fans. <laughs> well, aren't we all? Really? Yeah. Would, would you think of it? I mean, you know, I think if your inspiration, you're the inspiration comes on, uh, on the radio, I think we all sing. It's a great song. Yeah, I'm not ashamed to have Chicago in my vinyl collection. I, I love Chicago. I, I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm a big yeah. fan. I mean, they have so many albums out too. Odds are you're going to like at least one. Well, and, and that's just it. I mean, and there was different styles of Chicago too, right? It was like when they came out with the, the Chicago Transit Authority, they were you know more jazzy, progressive. And then they started becoming this humongous pop phenoms. And that was kind of the song, uh, You're My Inspiration from Chicago 17. That whole album really, really, really made them superstars. Uh, The song, You're My Inspiration, which is actually a pretty cool story behind that. So it was originally written for Kenny Rogers. Really? Uh, Yeah. Peter Cetera got a call from David Foster. They were working on uh, uh, an album with Kenny Rogers. And David's like, 
Peter, we need a song. We need a song for Kenny. I need you to write a song like right now. And, and Peter was actually on his way to Spain for a vacation. Like he was literally leaving that evening. So he drove down to the studio. They started working on the basis of you're my inspiration. He said, okay, give me another couple of days. Once I get to Spain, I'll send it to you. He finished it in Spain, sent it to Kenny. And for whatever reason, Kenny just did passed on it. And it turned out to be a great thing for Chicago because it was their biggest hit. It, and it kind of makes you think like, obviously they're not the first person to pass on a song and then the songwriter just does it and makes it a hit. But it, it always makes you wonder like, what if they yeah, had... Yeah. That's exactly like if Kenny, I mean, I think that song would have been a hit no matter who sang it. Uh, but can you, I just, I mean, and I love Kenny Rogers. Uh, I just can't see him do it. Like I can't see anyone else but Peter Sotera singing that song. Pretty much. Yeah. So what do you think? Does Bon Jovi, does Madonna, are, are they still the number one? Do they still hold up? Uh, I think as time goes on, I think Like a Prayer definitely would hold up as a number one song. I think I'll Be There For You is kind of getting lost in the Bon Jovi shuffle. I think there's so many better Bon Jovi songs that I don't, I, like if you were to say to someone, tell me Bon Jovi, I don't think I'll Be There For You is the first song you think of. Now, granted, I could probably say that about Madonna too, Like a Prayer, but I think, again, for me, Like a Prayer would be a top three for, for Madonna. Uh, I think I'll Be There For You, maybe top 10 Bon Jovi. So I, I, I'm not sure about the Bon Jovi. I think, I think Madonna, that's a genuine number one song. Absolutely. So we'll say Madonna, still number one. Yes. And Bon Jovi, eh, maybe not. Nostalgia has always been kind of a weird thing to me, especially nowadays. I'm not really the kind of person who likes dwelling in the past, especially because even though we look back at the past fondly, people can sometimes ignore all the bad stuff that was going on at the time. And yes, things might have been more comfortable, but if you did go back, it means having to relive a lot of bad moments all over again. But with the bad comes a lot of good moments too, and capturing those moments, actually getting to hold them in your hand and find more meaning every time that you look at them, to capture that energy and embrace the beauty of the imperfections and blurred views when you hit that shutter button, that's something that I can get behind. That is a beautiful thing. And that's why Polaroids are still relevant today. Huge thank you to Christopher Bonanos for joining the conversation. If you wanna know more about Polaroid photography, he has this fantastic keynote on YouTube. And of course, Find a copy of Instant, the story of Polaroid at your local bookstore as soon as you can. Huge thank you to Gruff for hanging out and thank you for listening too. The link to my sources are in the description. Please give it a review on iTunes, like it on Spotify, share this episode with your friends as much as you can. And I'll talk to you later.